Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey, good evening. Glad to have you guys here tonight. Uh, we are going to be diving back into Elijah. Uh, i got some new faces uh, that are joining us, which I love. Uh, my name is Jason, and I'm kind of guiding us through this text we're living in, in, in 1 Kings. Hopefully have a little bit of fun. We, we kind of do something every night. I'm going to preface it with a story, and then, because I don't want it to feel like a one-up story after everybody else shares theirs and I share this one, so I'll just start with this one. Um, <clears throat> the conversation we'll have tonight, kind of, we do a thing every night in here where just kind of tell some stories around a table. And you're filled free to combine tables or break your tables in half, however you want to do it, uh, or break the groups in half at the tables. I should clarify that. Um, but have you ever seen anything that's truly miraculous where you just, you didn't know what to do with it? I mean, it just is like, what just happened? Uh, I had that happen to me this summer. We do, I do an event, lead an event called Move uh, for Christ and Youth. And man, sometimes like my mind's in the right place, but then after about two or three weeks of doing this, you're just so tired from, you know, getting up at six o'clock in the morning and starting with meetings by 6.30 and then you're going clear till 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning and you're just with people nonstop. And for an introvert, after about three weeks, I'm like, I'm done. Um, this was toward the end of actually week two, I think. And I had these people coming to talk to me and they were... Just all kinds of stories. There was a, a lady that said, she came up and talked to me, and it was a heartbreaking story. Uh, her husband, a firefighter, and uh, he was working on the farm and had a, had, it was, I think it was Indiana or Illinois, tragic accident where he was killed by a piece of farming equipment. And just, just a horrible story. So I'm listening to her story and just, just broken over it. And then the next story up is, is just really difficult. Um, it, it's somebody else is stepping up, telling me about something that's going on in the life of a student. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to that story, trying to process it, trying to stay engaged. And then the third story steps up, and I'm kind of, I'm a bit more in business mode in this one. Because they kind of walk up, and they go, hey man, we need to make you aware of a situation. And you got to understand, we, we work with thousands of kids every summer. And so we're kicking kids out, we're sending kids home. You know, it's just part of it. Anytime you've got 40-some thousand teenagers in eight weeks... Dumb things happen. I mean, just, you're going to have it. And even on this one campus, I've got probably 1,800 high school kids. So, I mean, not, not all these kids are believers. They've been invited by friends. You just, you just don't always know what you're going to get in that moment. And so here I am. This group's from, I think they're from Indiana. And uh, we're kind of, no, they're from Michigan. And we're sitting there talking a little bit. And uh, they go, hey, man, we need to make you aware of every situation. You know, we've got a, a kid in our group uh, that has uh, had a problem with cutting. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay. Evidently, we had a self-harm issue last night. Here's how we're going to deal with this. I'm going to have to go through the process of asking, you know, what's the pattern here? If we had any reporting, we involved medical, you know, do you have a counselor that's working with him? Or mom and dad? I mean, my mind right now is barely, you know, when you get in that mode where you're not fully listening to people, but you're sorting through what you need to do. Uh, we don't want to be that way, but it's like you hear, you see their lips moving, but your brain is already thinking of like, okay, here's what my response is going to be. This is the protocol. This is what I do in this situation. And I'm kind of in that mode. And I don't want to be, but I'm in it, man. And so they're sitting there talking to me and I hear this phrase like, man, we don't really know what to do with this. And I'm like, well, you know, let me step in. And I'm just like, just sheer arrogance, honestly. I'm just going to step in and tell them because, man, I've dealt with this hundreds of times in, in doing this for 15 years. Literally hundreds of times I've had this conversation. But they keep talking and I'm just kind of waiting for, for a second, trying to be courteous. The conversation keeps unfolding. And I'm like, okay, all right. 
They said, well, you know, like uh, this, this kid, you know, he came on, on the trip and, you know, he's got these big cuts on his arm. And uh, they said, I, I don't know if you remember him. Uh, he was the, the guy that was, we do a thing called cheer for this kid. And uh, what it is, we look for kids who may have had, maybe they had a difficult year. Maybe something has just been, just been tough in their life. And they could use a day of their life where everyone just celebrates who they are. And just, I mean, we, they get to cut in line for meals. Kids carry them around campus. I mean, it's, it's honestly just fun. We just celebrate them. They get a, you know, a cape and a, you know, a crown they wear around. And everywhere they go, they get, like, they get cheered on and celebrated. Some people love it. Some people think, like, oh, that's cheesy. That's corny. Um, but anyway, they, they're just like, well, yeah, he, you know, he's a really big kid. And I got in late to the session that night because I was doing the leader meeting. And I didn't really get a chance to meet this kid. And long story short, it's like, I didn't really know who he was. Like, well, you know, he's a really big kid. You know, he was, he get, he, you know, we select him to be, be cheer for this kid, you know. Or, you know, the royal family was what we actually call it. And I keep processing. I'm listening to him and I don't really know what to do. And they said, well, you know what? He's, he's had a problem with cutting and his arms when he came were all really, he'd, he'd been cutting. It was, he had some scars and some scabs on his arms. It was, it was really pretty rough. And he says, so last night we had this moment, you know, like, we, you know, we did those frames at the top. And so what we did is one of the elements at night is we asked kids just to, to lean in and address their own brokenness address the, the sin issues, the brokenness issues, the wound issue, the things that are going on in their lives. And we just, from stage, said, man, for some of you, you need to deal with this. Which, you know, for most of us in this room, if you would have dealt with pains in your past a long time ago, you'd be in a much healthier place today. You know, we, we carry these wounds, we carry this baggage around for so long. These burdens just never leave us. And so we look at a high school kid saying... Man, let's come to terms with some of this at 16, 17, 18 years old. Let's get help. Let's have conversations. And so we do that from stage. We, just have, we say, okay, at the top of the bowl up here, uh, if you really say, I need help. I need to talk to somebody. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got issues in my heart, issues in my life. And, and we, don't, we don't really specify whether those things were things you know, that were done to you or things that you did to yourself. We just say, man, if there's, if there's pain and issues in your life, let's take time to deal with this. And so... The next step we say is that, hey, here's the deal. We're going to tell you, don't go with another high school kid. You need to grab an adult. You need to grab someone who can actually walk you through this process. And so we move adult leaders out into the aisles. And then it's crazy. You think they wouldn't do it. We get kids like, I mean, I saw, you see a kid go, I need to confess sin. And they're taking an adult leader up there. And they're talking about, you know, sexual morality. Or they're talking about, I got a drug addiction or pornography. Addiction. I mean, it was just the amount of confession, hundreds of kids moving out to just go confess. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids just moving out. And we had these frames. And, and the whole concept of this week was walking from darkness into light. And so these, these are just kind of like a, it's kind of, they were metal frames, kind of like a door frame over there. If you see a door frame, they're about that height. And, they were, and one side of them was lit, the other side was dark. And so a kid would walk up to the side that was dark, and the adult leader would just say, let me pray for you. And they'd reach through, they'd grab a hold of their hands, and just pull them into light, and then take them off to the side to say, let's pray and let's confess right now. Let's, let's get this right in your heart and life. So I'm listening to these people tell the stories, like, yeah, I know the frames. Like, I've been, I've been doing this. Like, I get it. And they said, but yeah, man, man you don't understand. Like, we don't, we don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, okay, well, in my mind, I'm like, we're going to get a counselor. We're going to make sure mom and dad know or, you know, that, that, you know, we've got an adult in their life that knows what's going on. They can walk them through this. We're going to make sure is there, is there immediate medical attention. Yeah, my, my brain's racing through all of my response mechanisms right now. And they keep saying this phrase, like, we don't know what to do with it. And finally, it's like, well, don't know what to do with what? They said, Jason, like, when we grabbed his arms and we pulled him through, 
Like, it's all gone. And I said, what? What? And they go, like, the scabs are gone. The scars are gone. All of the marks on his arms are gone. And I said, what? They go, we, we don't know what to do. Like, what, what do we do? Like, there's nothing there anymore. We all saw him. We've been with him. Like, we've been doing life with this kid. He's from our group. We all know him. And he came with scars and scabs and cuts on his arms. And when he pulled through that frame, they all left. What do we do? And I was like, don't figure it out. Don't figure it out. Just celebrate it, man. Live in it. I don't know what to do. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Like, at that moment, I go from having everything figured out to going, God, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't know what to do with that right there. That's amazing. It just blows my mind. So here's my question for you, because I love to have conversations at the table. I'm going to give a little bit of extra time tonight, so press pause on the recorder here. Have you ever seen, like, God do something so miraculous, or He intervened in such a way that you don't even know even how to find the words to explain it? You just can't find the words. Maybe a story you could tell, and we'll just celebrate the good things that Jesus has done. Let's just take a few moments, because tonight, when we get an Elijah, tonight is one of those stories. And I don't want us to rush through it. I want us to tap in just a little bit to the emotion of what we felt when we've been through one of those moments. And man, if you haven't, that's okay. I'm praying that you get that. But let's take a few moments. If you're like, yeah, I have, tell your story. All right? Let's do this. All right, we're going to jump back into this. Hopefully, I feel like I'm interrupting some really good conversations, just watching the way some of you guys were leaning in to hear these different stories. I could catch little bits and pieces, but it's a beautiful thing. We celebrate the good things that God has done. Uh, And man, we, we see things like that happen, you know, often. I think sometimes there's a timidity about us about sharing those things. And I, I don't know why we're like that in terms of like, man, let me tell you what, what God did. And I want to tell you this amazing story because it's, it's crazy. We go to scriptures, we love to tell those stories. But for some of us in our own personal lives, we tend to like get a little bit quiet about it. And uh, I'd encourage you, man, if it's celebrating the good things that Jesus has done, tell those stories. It's a beautiful thing. So we're living in uh, the life of Elijah. All right. Anybody remember what his name means? Anybody recall? Somebody said it? Yeah, yeah. We got different ways of saying it. Yeah, my God is the Lord. That whole concept, and we we kind of know that for him to have that name and that setting, it's crazy world. All right, uh, who's the remember the king's name and his and his crazy wife? Remember her? Yeah, Jezebel. We talked about it's the reason why you rarely see anybody naming their daughter Jezebel. Doesn't happen very often. Uh, not a lot of Ahabs out there either. Uh, you just don't see that name very often. He is an Israelite king that's just jacked up, man. He's a screwed up, bad individual. He is just full on Baal worship. He's the king of Israel and leading the country completely astray. And, uh, and man, you want to talk about just an immoral individual. And his wife, she's horrible. Uh, if you remember, uh, Elijah comes. And we'll just kind of give her a quick refresher. What does Elijah do? He goes, to, he goes to this guy. What does he prophesy? No rain till when? No rain. Yeah, it will be three years, but what he says is, until I say so, yeah. But you're right, though. It's exactly what it'll be. No rain for, you know, it's going to end up being three years, but no rain until I say it's going to rain. And if you remember, it's not Elijah. He's not just winging it. He's not just making it up. What he's doing is he's quoting Scripture. I can't remember where those texts come from. Somebody's going to remind me again. Do you remember what it was? 
It's like Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28, I think, is what he's quoting. But I could be off on that. I've got it written down somewhere. 11, 16 to 17. Was it 11, verse 16 to 17? I think, again, in chapter 28. He's just quoting back and saying, hey, man, God's about to do what God said he's going to do. So buckle up, man. He's not just like pulling out of the air, making it up. And then God basically takes him and he just tells him, get out of here. Leave town. He takes him to this place called Cherith. Anybody know what that means? What that place means? Yeah, hiding. Okay. Anybody else remember the, the term that was used to describe it? Yeah, cut off or cut down. And it's a, it's a place where he was cut off from civilization. He was cut off from everything. That cherith means cut off, cut down. And I look at it two ways. <coughs> One is he cut Elijah off from everything because Jezebel was killing all of, of, of God's prophets. She's killing them all. So he had to literally remove him so far away to this, this little brook clear on the other side of the Jordan, completely distant, out in the wilderness. This guy's living in rough, rugged terrain, man. He is living in a place that is mountainous. There is not much grass. There is nothing but rock and rubble. And he is stuck away, probably some valley, hidden away, tucked in tight, where literally only God himself knows where he's at. And he's out there for a long time, probably a year plus. This is not a camping trip. Uh, this is, and honestly, if you understand where Elijah comes from, he comes from that type of terrain. He's not a city boy, man. Elijah's not uncomfortable, but still, man, if you're living, it's a huge drought. There's not much food. The people dying because of lack of food and water. Judgments come on this place, and Elijah's stuck up by this little place that's literally called the cutoff, the hidden away, man. That he's cut off, and he's being cut down as well. That God is stripping Elijah away. Because here in a little bit, it, we call it like, it's like a, a boot camp. I think it was George we were talking to last week. It's a little bit like boot camp, man. He has got to break this prophet down because he knows what's coming. And the present Elijah can't handle what he's about to go through. He won't be able to handle it, man. He will melt. He will wither away. So God's got to pull him away. And for a year or so, he's going to work on this prophet and get him right. Where the only interaction he's going to have is with God. And whatever ravens happen to bring him food. And so if you remember we talked about the ravens, the, the brook would in water. The ravens would bring him food. And ravens are scavengers. So in my mind, they're probably bringing things that have died from the drought. And I don't know, maybe God's been gracious and they're finding food somewhere. But this probably is not really great food he's getting. And man, he's down there in a really difficult, difficult, difficult terrain. In a difficult space. In the middle of a drought, and then finally God dries up this brook. Come on, you got to be kidding me, man. Why couldn't God just said, hey, head on out? Why did you have to dry up the brook? It reminds me of some of you guys have grown up around the church. It reminds me a little bit of when God sends this worm to chew up this vine, and Jonah all of a sudden finds himself like, what are you... You took away my vine. You took away my shade. In the same way, he had to move Jonah out of here to this great city. He's now about to move Elijah away from this brook. And he's going to send him to this city called Zarephath. Okay? Let's talk about Zarephath just a little bit. Because where you come from and where you're going, it matters. It matters. Okay? So Elijah comes from this area called, he's a Tishbite. It's it's a no-nothing town, man. Not even significant. He ends up going to this place called the cutoff place where he goes through boot camp, a spiritual boot camp. His, his body, he's just remade. When he first goes, he's recognized for being from a, a Tishbite. When he gets out, they call him a man of God. That something has happened to him, we would say almost at a DNA level, man. He has changed who he is. 
But he goes to this place called Zarephath. All right? It's where he's hanging out now. God sends him there. And let's, let's just jump into the text right now. And, and we'll, keep, we'll keep going. It says, sometime later, verse 7 of chapter 17, 1 Kings 17, 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. How many of you guys remember what there, what, it, what there is about this phrase that's important? Where he says, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. What's the kicker in there? What's the point you're like, well, what? Huh? Yeah, Jezebel's, that's Jezebel's home turf, man. He's sinning, man. You want to talk about going from the fry, you know, uh, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, man. We, we pass over this stuff sometimes because we read things just a little too quickly. And a lot of times it's better if we just slow down just a little bit and ask those why questions. Go to Zarephath of Sidon. Now, most of the time we'd have blown over that like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. But man, if, if you're reading this back in, in Elijah's day, you're like, what? You want me to go to Tehran? You know, you want me to go where? You want me to go to the heartbeat of like where they hate people like me? Like, you're crazy, God. When he tells him to go there, that is not Elijah like, all right, that sounds good. That'd be a great vacation spot. No, 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 no. If you've got to remember, Jezebel, we read this in the next chapter, she's slaughtering prophets like crazy. She's killing him. And God just sent this prophet to her home region where her dad is king. What in the world is God doing? And I told you guys last week, I wish that, like, church world, we'd wrap our heads around this. This is every bit as dramatic as when he sends, you know, Moses back to Egypt. and We make a big deal of it. Or every bit as dramatic as when Daniel's in Babylon. And we think about how bad Babylon is. This is every, every bit as dramatic as when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into a fiery, fort, fort, fiery furnace. I, I kind of want to jump up and down and yell, like, this is a big deal. Like, nobody ever showed you on flannel graph how big of a deal this, this is. This is earth shattering. He's sending Elijah into the mouth of the lion, man. This is intense if you're Elijah. This is like... You can't just read it like a couple of towns, a little region. He's like, hey, Elijah, leave the brook and go to the mouth of the lion. I mean, this is like, hey, step into the octagon. Step into the ring. It's about to get real. I've been training you for over a year, and I'm moving you in. I got goosebumps in my arms thinking about if I'm Elijah and I'm hearing that, I'm like, nah, stay by the brook, man. I'm good here. I'll find some water. I'll dig. Like... This is a difficult word he's getting. But because of the training he's gone through, look what happens. Go once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. It's not like he's just going to walk through the town and stay there. That's huge. He says, I've I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. And we've talked about, man, that's probably a 100-mile journey he's doing with no water. Um, this is a rough, rough journey. Rough journey through mountainous area, hostile area. And remember, he just told off the king and queen about a year ago. I mean, flat told them off. She's got bounty men out looking for him. She's got headhunters out looking for him. And now he's going to walk a hundred and some miles deeper into enemy territory to find some widow? I mean, like, are you kidding me, God? Like, this is your plan. 
Similar to the mouth of a lion, not to an army, not to another hiding place, but to like go live with somebody completely vulnerable. Stay there. You got to think about this. I mean, his prayers are probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming here. This is me laying a mat. I assume a lot. It's another massive assumption. She's probably a widow because of his prayer. I mean, I would imagine there's a good chance she's lost her husband because of this drought and everything going on. I mean, I don't think she's very old. Sometimes we, we, we immediately jump to the concept of widow when we think of somebody elderly. I don't think she's an elderly widow. She's got a young son. I don't, I don't think she is. She's probably a somewhat young mom that's in a really, really tight spot with a young, kid, with a young boy trying to figure out how she's going to make ends meet. And it's not like it is today, man. It's not like you can find the government's going to come alongside. you got a massive drought. You're living. It's not even paycheck to paycheck. It's meal to meal. It's hand to mouth. It's what food can you go harvest today in order to eat that night. And when there's no rain for three years, everything's dry, no crops being harvested, and you've got this family over here, their attitude is, I'm kind of going to take care of me and mine. This widow, I mean, she's living on the fringe, man. She is on the edge. Let's finish reading her story. We read it last week. I don't want to camp out here too much because I can eat the rest of it tonight. He says, when he t- came to the, uh, the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, uh, would you bring me uh, some, a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? Now keep in mind, it's a drought. It's a huge request. And as she was going to get it, he called, uh, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. I'm like, that's like asking for gold. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. This woman is, she's, she's a Gentile. She, in his mind, is a pagan. In his mind, she's unclean. He shouldn't be interacting with her as a good Jewish man. He shouldn't be. It's just, it's just the way it was. She says, but she, she, she references his God. She says, I don't, I don't have any bread. And only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Into the line, man. Into the line. Uh, it's a scary, terrifying place to be. I have, uh, we all face this in different ways. Uh, I have come twice in my life pretty close to end of the line. Like, really close to end of the line. Where, whether by accidents or stupidity, I found myself going, Whew, that was just about it. Like, you're walking that edge about as close as you can walk it. Uh, once through a bike wreck, and some of you guys know that story, where I, I broke two vertebrae in my neck, and then a C6 and C7 just shattered them. And the other one was, I uh, did not take care of my body the way I should have, and I ended up getting my, my whole bloodstream was septic. My oxygen levels dropped down to the upper 70%, and, uh, and uh, I couldn't breathe. I was running about 104 fever, and I remember going to the, into Freeman, and the doctor looked at me and, he, and, and me asking, like, I can barely breathe. And I asked this doctor, don't remember who he was. Like, even now, it still affects me. You'll notice sometimes, like, when I breathe, I'm like, like I still deal with this. But I remember asking this question. I'm, on, I'm trying to get, he goes, listen, man, the fact you can't breathe is the least of my concern. I'm like, well, that's number one of my concerns, doc. And uh, he just goes, listen, man, the, the, you, you, that is not what we're concerned about right now. He says, your whole blood is infected. Like, it's, it's beginning to attack your liver, your brain, your heart. Like, you're in trouble here. And I said, well, I just take some antibiotics and go home. And he says, no, 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 you're not listening. The, the issue is not 
not when you go home. The issue is if you go home. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where all of a sudden you realize, like, you just realize, whoa, this, this just got real. Like, this just... I don't want you to, to read that like it's a figure of speech. I think this woman was at the end. This is it. She's going to do this, and they're going to die. They're going to starve. This is it. End of the line. And here this guy shows up, and he asks her for her last meal. Part of it we can look at it and say, what a jerk. You know what I mean? Like, who does that? What kind of prophet shows up and says, give me what little water you got left and the last bit of food. I'm going to eat it for myself. But you you got to back away from that mentality for a second. And again, we got to get to the meat of the text tonight. I'm just doing a review because we got a lot of new people here tonight. you got to keep in mind that God in his great sovereign wisdom knew the very day he needed to drive that brook. He knew when that widow was going to run out. He knew exactly how this was playing out. He knew the day that the brook had to run dry. He knew how long it would take Elijah to walk from Cherith all the way to Zarephath. He knew how long it would take. He knew exactly how many days it would take him to get there. He knew exactly what time of day he needed to get there. So there was still a little bit of water left, I mean, a little bit of oil left, and a little bit of flour left. Left. He got there before she cooked the meal, the very last meal. I mean, in God and his great wisdom, God and all of his providence is not taking this prophet and being a jerk. God is showing immense compassion right now. Immense compassion. I want you to look at this, dude. Look at God's mercy for this widow. And keep in mind, she's a Gentile. This isn't even like she hasn't professed God. She alludes to Elijah's God. She hasn't professed him yet. And God in his mercy drives up the brook to the day, delivers Elijah to the day, to the moment she's collecting the sticks to build the fire to cook the last meal for her to die. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's beautiful. Keep reading. Keep going. She says, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you said. But first, make me a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself. That is faith. I can say this. If... If I was in that situation, I probably fed my kid first. I fed my kid first. I just would have. I probably said, "Get out of here, you dumb old man! I ain't feeding you. Hit the road." What amazing faith this woman has! If she doesn't obey, she dies. I think she does. But in this obedience. In this reckless, dangerous obedience, she will find life, unbelievable life. For the Lord, for this what the Lord, and she knows this is true. She says, for this what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Now here's what my creative mind wonders. When she poured the oil that time, and she put it down, was there already oil back in the jar right then? Like, I wonder that. Like, was it instantaneously? When she dumped out the flour, and she put the flour container, whatever it is, back over here, did she take a peek over like, there's flour back in there? Or is it kind of like what happens with the children of Israel, where every morning they wake up and there's, there's manna and quail, and God just, like, is it like Christmas every day? 
You know, or is it like an Easter egg hunt? Every every day is Easter. She wakes up out of bed, she walks in, getting the coffee out. There's no coffee. She kind of walks over, starts to feel this. Her the palms start to sweat. Opens up the jar, looks in, like we got flour. Shuts it back down. We're like, I wonder how that plays out. And I wonder, can you imagine what it's like just to relive that miracle every day? I think for most of us right now, we're like, that would be amazing to relive that miracle every day. Here's the truth of the matter, though. In my own heart, I relive a miracle every day. The fact that I've dodged that end twice. And do you know how easy it is to forget God's goodness? Yeah, you know easy is to forget those times where He provides? How easy it is to just like, oh, man, God does something great. And you're thinking, man, I will never forget this. I'll always remember the day that God did this. And time goes by, and you just kind of forget, huh? It drifts on. We just stop telling the stories. We get used to going to the same jar. We get used to pulling air back into our lungs and forgetting that every breath is a gift. Because I can remember, I can remember that night on the way to the ER going, God, just let me take a few more breaths. I just got to make it there. Didn't even want to tell my wife. I remember one time I'm in the bathroom and I'm trying to get, I know, in, our, in our bedroom, trying to get her shoes. And I know there was an inhaler in the living room. My wife's in the bathroom and I am full on not telling her how bad I am. That's the absolute truth. I'm an absolute idiot. She has no idea how much trouble I'm in. And I remember sitting there going, God, if you can just let me make it to the living room to get that inhaler. If I can just make it there. And man, I remember just taking off and running and crawling and finally just feeling like I was completely going to pass out and just be like gas and go, and just, God, that hurt. Oh man, shouldn't have done that. And just, you know that moment, that moment where you remember God took care of you. I, I don't know. I hope she cherishes the flower every day. But I know what happened to the children of Israel. And they started grumbling about manna. They started grumbling about quail. They started grumbling about the things they didn't have. It's hard to lead a life of contentment sometimes. To be truly thankful. Let's keep moving. He um, says, so she went away and did no, I did her. And, uh, and there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of oil was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord that's uh, spoken by Elijah. So here we go. Sometime later. We don't know how long it is. Sometime later. I believe Elijah probably just must stay at this woman's house. I'm assuming that based on some stuff in the story. I don't really know. He may have lived somewhere else. But no doubt he stays in contact with this woman because he's getting food there. God's not just providing for her and for her son. He's also providing for his prophet because he needed to keep him alive as well. But he's, he's in this environment. And sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. Mm. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Um, I don't understand that. I don't know what it's, it's like. I'm sure we probably have people sitting around this circle tonight who understand what it's like to walk that journey. I don't know. I can tell you... Uh, as a parent of four kids, I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything that would be more earth-shattering than, than that moment. 
I, I, I cannot understand her grief. I can empathize. But I cannot imagine what it's like just to watch this worse go to worse. I mean, you've got, you've, it's not a food issue. I don't know what it is, what makes him sick. I have no idea. It, it sounds like it's a, a process. It sounds like it's not necessarily an accident. It's some sort of illness that's come in. And I don't know if that has to do with disease in the area because of the drought or what it is, but something's caused this kid to get sick. He becomes worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Uh, that moment of silence. Um, I've been, as a, as, a, as a youth pastor on several occasions, I've been on the other side of this where I've sat with moms um, that have lost their kids. Um, I don't want to say because it's being recorded uh, what state it was in or where it happened. Uh, I'd be willing if we can self record, you can ask questions later on. But early on in ministry, um, I had to go to, uh, I don't even like to relive this, but I had to go to a uh, um, funeral home to be there when the parents arrived to see their child for the first time. And another pastor was going to be there with me, and he was running late, got stuck in traffic, whatever it was. I ended up being the only person there when this mom and, uh, and the rest of the family, I'm trying to be careful out of respect for this family, because if they were listening, they could figure it out. And, but I remember watching them walk in, and, and I'm a pretty young pastor at this point in time, and I'm like, I, I, I don't know what to do in this moment. Like, you just don't know what to do. And I remember watching her just, I mean, she had a complete and total breakdown and just trying to, to pull her out of that, that casket off of her, her child, trying to control this moment. Like, if you've ever been with somebody who, who's truly experienced that depth of grief, that depth of break, brokenness, you, there's no words you can say in that moment. There's just nothing you can, you can do. And, and you think about, like, you put yourself on Elijah's shoes. I mean, man, God, you brought me here to this... What are you doing? You brought me here to this Zarephath place with this lady I don't even know, and I'm trying to do my best to, like, figure out why I'm here, and I don't even, I don't even know any of this town. I'm stuck here right now in the middle of this place where they all want to kill me, and now her, her, her kid dies? Like, what are, what, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, God? I'm, I'm in Elijah's mind right now. Like, God, why? Why are you doing this? What in the world can you possibly be up to? God, why, why did you spare him from the, from the very beginning? Why did you spare him when he, he could have starved and died that way? Why did you, why did you spare him and prolong this? You know, at, at least that might have been a quicker death than to watch it go from worse to worse. And now here he is and he's just stopped breathing. I mean, I'm sure Elijah's like, God, get me out of this. I'd, I'd rather go back to a dried up creek than be here. And in a dried up creek, he's dealing with loneliness. In a dried up creek, he's dealing with isolation. But, but now he's dealing with grief and despair and pain and agony. And here he is just standing in this, this house downstairs looking at this woman who's, I mean, distraught. What do you do? I love that Elijah doesn't do what most of us do. Most of us, not necessarily you specifically, but a lot of us who make the dumb mistake I do is we, we open our mouths and we say things. Oh, man, I, he's in a better place now. You know, all things work together for good. Like, we, we say these phrases 
Like, I remember one of the phrases I hated that people would say to me when I broke my neck. And I, would, I remember I was, there was this one moment where I, was, uh, I went to a speaking engagement like a month after I did it. My neurosurgeon said it was okay. That was stupid. But she said I could. But it was good for me for this reason. I was up there. I was speaking. I remember one moment I had this neck brace on. And what, I don't, what you don't think about is that like your neck and your, when you speak and you go at it, you're really passionate about it. It's like any other muscle. It swells. And I said my neck started swelling, and I had on this neck brace. I didn't know why, and I started to black out. And then all of a sudden, I realized, like, oh, my neck is swelling, and it's cutting off these carter arteries right here. Like, I'm losing consciousness right now. Like, calm down. But I remember being in this place, I think it was in Virginia, and uh, I was walking to this convention center. It was for this thing. It was a, a ICOM thing. It was a conference on missions. I was speaking for the student thing. And I was walking down this neck brace, just trying to stall, waste some time. All of a sudden, I heard a guy call my name. He's like, hey, Jason. And I mean, I can't look down, so I just kind of turn around like this, and I don't see anybody at first. And he goes, hey. And all of a sudden, I kind of I do this number. I kind of bend over a little bit, because I'm still real, it's a month in. I mean, I'm real tentative right now. What's today? A 26th. In fact, it'll be two years uh, on the 28th. And uh, I look at this guy, and he's, he's sitting there in a wheelchair. And he's, uh, he's about maybe a little bit younger than me. And I said, hey, man. And I, so I just kind of real carefully get down, I take a knee, and I was like, man, tell me your story. And he's like, yeah, just was driving home from work, and a car rear-ended me. I broke, you know, two T-vertebrae back here, never walk again. And remember, he looked at me, I had two of his, kids, his own personal children there with me. He looked at me, and he goes, why do you get to walk, man? He goes, that's crazy. I don't understand. I just broke, I just broke the T's. Like, you broke C6, C7. He goes, why do you get to walk? And I remember that question, like, shook me to my core. Like, I didn't know what to do with that in that moment. Like... I just literally just almost, I just walked away. I just wanted to be alone. Like I, I've, I've wrestled with that question. But what people would say, like, man, God must have big plans for you. And it's like, oh, as if he doesn't have for this guy. Like, no, don't say that kind of stuff. Well, God must have spared you for a reason. No, I, I think he probably spared me because my faith wasn't strong enough to withstand the other side of it. You know, that's probably, he probably had to spare me out of his mercy because of how weak my faith would have been. Sometimes we say dumb things to people. Things like he's in a better place. We do them with good intentions. We do them with a good heart. When honestly, sometimes when somebody's going through grief, the best thing you can do is just be present, be quiet, just be there. Watch what Elijah does here. He doesn't know what to do, man. You've you got to empathize with this, with this old timer right now. You've got to empathize with him. He's standing in this lady's house. Her son just died, and he's there. He doesn't even know her that well. Uh, she's, he's probably gotten to know over the, maybe been a year. I don't know how long he's been there. And this is what he does. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, I'm going to ask the moms in the room. Okay? Men, let's just, we talk too much. Ladies, tell me what she's truly, truly saying in all of that. Read it just like you're saying it. What's she saying? Read between the lines. Read that verse a couple of times. Oh, you said it. What was it? It's my fault. She, at first we think, oh, she's blaming Elijah. But the ladies in the room can quickly see, like, no, she's blaming herself. She's owning this man. She feels the agony. 
And man, if, if, if you've ever been to that place as a parent where you see the mistakes your kids are making, or you see the place they're in, you're like, man, this is my fault. If I would have done this differently, if I would have just done this, if I would have made this decision, if I'd have been better at this, if, I'd have, if I would have pushed this more, if I would have you know, encouraged this, and, then all these things that have turned out the way they've turned out, they, they just wouldn't happen. And man, as parents, we understand this woman. Even as dads, we get it. Like I see sometimes, I you know, we get these rites of passage that we do with our kids. And, you know, the, the fourth one that we do among five is, is a, uh, actually, no, it's a fifth one. The fifth one we do of the five will be my wife and I taking one of our kids out together with their spouse. And it's going to be right before the birth of their first child. And honestly, it's just a time of repentance. It's just what we do. At that, it's, a, it's the last rite of passage we do, because you can't really keep doing it when they're in their 40s and 50s. It just gets weird. But we, we're going to take them out before the birth of the first child, and I say, man, I want to repent. I want to tell you I'm sorry. I, I don't want you to parent to try to be different than me, and I know I made mistakes, and I'm going to ask you, will you just, I'm going to wash your feet and say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for the way, because we carry that as parents, man. When things go wrong in our kids' lives, we think it's our fault that we screwed up. We did this wrong. I just would have been better this. Would have been better that. And she's living with this right now. In her grief, she's just saying phrases like, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my own sin, you know, and kill my son? And here's what I say to people when you're going through difficulties. It's, it's, it's probably like, that really wasn't encouraging. But here's a simple truth. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous is what Jesus says. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. So often you're like, well, man, what is God trying to do? And I know that I must have done something, and God's punishing. I'm just saying, man, you watch the storm clouds come over, and the rain falls on your, on, on your neighbor's house, and it falls on your other neighbor's house, and it falls on the people who probably live two or three hundred yards away. Like, everybody's house gets hit by rain, doesn't it? Same thing happens with grief and despair and difficulties, man. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. My attitude is, let it rain. It's going to happen. If you're not going through trouble, buck it up because it's probably coming your way. Because I would imagine if we went through this room and I asked you about your last six months or your last three months, half the room is going to say, it's been tough. Half of the room is going to say, it's been great. And if I ask the same question another three months, the other half would raise their hands. Because we go through that, man. It's always a season of we're either in difficulties or we're preparing for it. And I don't think this woman's sin is the issue. I don't think this woman's sin has caused her son this... He just got sick. He died. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Bad things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. It just, it, it's the way it works. It's our response and the way we handle that that makes a difference. So here's what happens. All he says, he says is one phrase. Give me your son. Whew. Now that, it's a, it's a big statement. Here she is probably, I mean, I don't think this is a wrong, ra- calm, rational discussion they're having. She's probably broke down, crying, just wailing, weeping. It's all she's got left. Her son is dead. He didn't know what to do, so he just says a few words. Give me your son. Not much, but it will absolutely be enough. Give me your son. And he took him from her arms. So I don't know if she's sitting on the ground just rocking him. I don't know if he's a small enough boy that she's actually holding him. I don't know how to visualize that. I know what Elijah will do next, so it leads me to think that he's probably either pretty, pretty frail, pretty either lost a lot of weight, we don't know. 
but we know that this is a dire situation because this is what plays out. He says, he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on the bed. So here's Elijah, who God pushes him out of his hometown to go confront the king and queen. They want to kill him, so he flees for a brook. He lives with his brook for almost a year, being fed by birds. Then he gets driven into enemy territory. He's lived with some widow he doesn't know. And now here he is. Man, it just feels like, it feels like this thing just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Zarephath. I haven't told you what Zarephath means yet, have I? Yeah, Zarephath is an interesting term. It's an interesting word in terms of what, what that means. It comes, it comes from the Hebrew word, the name of that town, which means to melt. That's what it means. Zarephath means to melt. Or actually, it would mean to smelt. Anybody know what it means to smelt? Yeah? Huh? Have anybody here who's ever done anything like a blacksmith? Anybody done blacksmithing before? We all understand. Been to Silver Dollar City. We've seen the blacksmiths, okay? We've watched this take place. I don't know if maybe they had some sort of a, of a smelting area there in Zarephath, and that's why the town's called that. But what the town actually means is, it, it basically means it's a crucible. It's a place where things are heated up, so imperfections, the slag, all that kind of stuff can be drawn aside. But the heat arises in order to pull out the impurities. That's what the town Zarephath means. So he goes number one, because I'm telling you, man, towns matter in the Old Testament. So many times we fly over these names like they're no big deal. God sends him to a place that's called cut down and cut away. And then he says, all right, I'm going to rebuild you. And now I'm going to send you to a place that's going to melt you down. Because what's the biggest point of melting something down? It's not just to get the impurities. Why do you melt something down? Why do you melt it down? To shape it. He says, listen, man, I've cut you down and I cut you away for a bit. I cut you off because I had to deal with some things in your life to get you ready. Because you don't know what's coming, Elijah. Now, listen, man, there's a few more things I've got to prepare you for and you're not ready. I'm going to send you into this town, into the mouth of a lion, and I'm going to put you in a really, really tight spot. So hot. You thought it was hot as a Tishbite when you lived and you knew the whole area was corrupt? You thought it was hot when you stood before Ahab? You really did? You thought it was hot when I put you out here and you ran out of water and you thought it was hot? Now you're standing there and I'm going to turn the heat up a whole nother level because I'm going to draw something out of you. I'm going to create something in you, Elijah, that's going to push you because you're going to need it. This is about Elijah right now. What's about to happen is going to be a crucible moment for him. Why God chose this widow, I don't know. But this is about to be a crucible for Elijah. Zarephath is about to get hot. Some things are going to percolate in Elijah that are going to cause him an absolute crisis that will completely shape the way he lives forevermore. Here's how it plays out. He takes a dead boy in his arms and carries him up the stairs. Can't imagine that. Cannot imagine that. Just him and this boy, and he walks in the upper room, and he shuts the door, lays the boy in the bed, and it's just him and this kid. In his mind, he's like, why did I say, give me your son? Like, what, what am I planning to do? Like, you guys that have grown up in church, you know how this story ends, right? Okay? Real quickly, before Elijah, tell me, okay, how's this story going to end? You already know what happens. 
Come on, what happens? Yeah, the kid comes back to life. We all know what's going to happen. You're Elijah. Let's go back in time. You're Elijah right now. Tell me the other instance before this when someone was raised from the dead. Before Elijah. What do you got? Go back. Having a hard time picturing it? Because it's never happened. This is the first time, man. There's no precedent for this. There's no context for this. The only thing you've got is Genesis. Enoch walked with God. The first prophet. That's all you got. He, didn't, he wasn't raised from the dead. He just, God just took him. No one at this point has ever come back to life. Never has this happened. This is the first occurrence in all of Scripture of somebody dying and coming back to life. Elijah doesn't know how this is going to go down. He's not read the book you've read. He's not read the story you've read. He's standing in the room with a dead kid having no idea what he's about to do. Is he pacing the room? Is he walking around? How is this going to go down? There's no like manual that he can pull out of his prophet book and go, oh, when a kid dies, you lay on him three times and they come back to life. Like that doesn't exist. He's standing in the room with a dead kid going, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what to do. Cherith taught him what to do. Boot camp taught him what to do. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we read these stories and we're so far past them because we know how they end that it's refreshing at times just to go back and say, ah, what would you do? If you opened your mouth and said, give me your son, and you're holding this kid going, what have I just done? And you walk up the stairs with him and you lay him on the bed and the door shuts and mom's downstairs weeping and crying and you're just standing at the floors creaking underneath your feet in the silence of a kid who can't breathe and is gone. What are you going to do? What he's about to do is probably not what I would have done. Let's read it. And then he cried out to the Lord. There's the first thing. I think he learned that at Cherith. I think days of being alone taught him what it meant to cry out to God. God was the only one he had out there with him. God was the only one who met him in Cherith. God is the only community he had. And he learned in that moment not to rely on men or women. He learned not to rely on his own abilities. I mean, at that moment, God gives him food. God gives him water. And every day, he wakes up and a miracle happens. He cries out, God, I'm hungry. Here come the birds dropping off food. There you go. God, I'm hungry. It's nighttime. Here comes the ravens dropping off food. There it is. He learned. He saw God do miracles that couldn't be explained. I don't know if it ever got old. Or if it's ever like, this is crazy. This is crazy. How this... But he knew God could do the impossible. He knew when I cry out to God, crazy things can happen. When I cry out to God, the impossible can take place. And that's where you find him right now in this text. The first thing he does is he lays this boy in the bed and he cries out to God because he doesn't know what to do. There's no book he can read by an author. There's no fancy little thing he can do. Five steps to raising the dead. There's nothing like that. It's just him in a room going, God, help me right now. I don't know what to do. He cried out to God, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought down tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Now, there's a little space between the word die and the word then in the NIV. 
Elijah's got this pattern in his life. And I'm going to read into this text. I don't think Elijah just thought, oh, I'll stretch out on him. That makes sense, because that's weird. You can't read this like it's going to make sense. If you've not read it before, I'll just read it real quick. This is weird stuff. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. He laid down on top of a dead body. That's weird. That's weird. Like, no, no, that makes sense. No. No, that doesn't. Doesn't make sense. This is not something you culturally do, and especially if you are Jewish. Why would you never do this if you're Jewish? Because a dead body is unclean. A dead Gentile body is really unclean. Like, you can't touch this body. Like, like this is actually unbiblical what he's about to do. But sometimes desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. I think that space between the two words is Elijah's got a pattern. When God tells him to do something, what does he do? God says, go, he goes. God says, speak, he speaks. God says, wait, he waits. God says, stay, he stays. I think God says, stretch yourself out on the boy. Stretch himself out on the boy. <laughs> okay, God. So here he goes. Gets down, lays on top of this kid. I don't, I, I don't know what that looks like. Like, is it nose to nose with this dead body? That's bizarre. This next phrase really catches my attention, though. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. I like to think it literally means his cry. Like, I like to think this kid's face is wet with his tears. I like to think that Elijah's laying on top of him and tears are running down his face. And the boy's face is wet with the tears of Elijah. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. There's a verse, a text, if you want to turn with me to John. It's one of my favorites. John 21. Actually, John 20, I believe. (laughs) Say, I love the text. Yeah, I can't remember the reference. Oh, man. Why do I always go so long? (sighs) John 19. There it is. Let me find this real. Make sure you get the right one. Right, right part here. There it is. Uh, John chapter uh, chapter 20, verse 19. It says, On the evening, John 20, 19, On the evening, the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As a Father sent me, I am sending you. And here are words are just about as odd as laying down on top of a kid. This is one of those things, if, if you ever look at it and, and think, oh, all this stuff in the Bible makes total sense. Like, what, what planet do you come from? Like, sometimes I think we do things in church that people have to go, we are now drinking the blood and eating the body of Jesus. Like, 
If you're new to church, that's weird, man. Come on. Cut people some slack when they show up here and they're like, I don't know about that communion thing. That's a little bizarre. It just is. This is another one of those things in Scripture. I'm like, huh? Like, what? It says this. These guys are scared out of their ever-loving minds. They've just watched Jesus die. Jesus walks into the room with them through a locked door, through the wall, shows up and says, hey, you idiots. No, he doesn't. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side, and they're overjoyed when they realize it's the Lord. Yeah, because you're like, what is happening right now? And what's he do? He does something bizarro, something that we look at and go, what is that all about? It says, and with that, he breathed on them. Those are four weird words. He breathed on them. The God of the universe, on them. That's weird, man. He, on them. We don't like it when people breathe on us. Okay? I don't like it when my own kids breathe on me. I'm like, get off me, man. They're my children. I'm like, like, if I'm laying in bed with my wife and I turn around, I'm like, she's asleep. She's like, I'm like, come on, man. Breathe on me. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes the halitosis all over. We don't, we don't like that. Like, we like our space. We like our fresh air. It's just like, he breathed on them? Like, we're like out of everything he could have done, like, high five them or something. Make you, you huh on them? You, that's weird, man. I remember one time, I went to this Dodgers game. And it was hot. Burning up hot. I was poor and I was sitting in the cheap seats. My wife was with me. My father-in-law was with me. And it's that moment where you're in L.A. and you're out in the outfield of Dodger Stadium. Have you ever been there in the outfield? You just get baked in the afternoon. And they're running around saying, hot dogs. I'm like, I want nothing hot. And I pulled my shorts up to like early 70s level, trying to stay cool. Sleeves are up. I mean, I'm just, I'm just sweating. And it's that kind of sweat where you don't want to touch anyone else because it's just slimy sweat. You're just like, this is miserable. And like, why are we still here? Because we paid to be there. And I don't even care about the Dodgers, but I went out of here. We're watching this game, and we're just getting baked. And then all of a sudden, something that rarely happens in Southern California is all of a sudden a cloud comes in. And I will never forget this moment. You can see it happen. Like, I can still visualize, like, I'm sitting in the outfield today. Like, all of a sudden, I saw these pennants at the back of the top of the stadium start to move and, and, like, wave around a little bit. I just watched it. And then all of a sudden, you could sense, like, this, this movement come over the top of the stands and come down and come across home plate. And I'm out in the cheap seats behind center field, and you could watch it. And all of a sudden, man, you saw all these little dirt devils begin to kick up. And you could just sense this movement as it swept across you know, the pitcher's mound and first and third base. And all of a sudden, it comes across second base. And you could feel the momentum as a, like a little bit of trash begin to blow that was out there. And it comes across. And then all of a sudden, it comes all the way out to that wall, the outfield. And, and all of a sudden, this wind just hits that wall. And it comes up over the top of it. And I'm sitting there completely drenched in sweat. And when that wind hits me, it's like... <sighs> He breathed on them. It's that moment when you're in an elevator and you get some kid hacking and coughing next to you. Somebody else is like, sounds like they've got, you know, a lung coming out. Somebody else has got bad breath. Somebody else, you think they probably passed gas in there and you're holding your breath thinking, I just don't want to breathe in this elevator. Like, I'll get, I don't care if it's my floor. I'm getting off, okay? Like, it's packed. There's too many people in this thing. I went out right now and all of a sudden the door is open and you're like, clawed. <sighs> and he breathed on them. He breathed on them. 
And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it is that raised... Who, who raised Jesus from the dead? Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's Holy Spirit that goes into the tomb where Jesus is at. It's the Holy Spirit that breathes life back into Jesus. Until all of a sudden Jesus laying there, wrapped up, dead, dead, dead. Not alive. All that moment, the Holy Spirit stretches out over the body of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the eyes of Jesus explode open. All of a sudden, he's clawing back all of those veils, all of those death garments on top of him. He claws those off. And even the Messiah himself goes, and he sets up out of that tomb. At the very beginning of Genesis, when Adam is laying there, it's the Holy Spirit that shows up when it says that God... Breathe life into Adam. And all of a sudden, Adam... And the air fills his lungs for the first time. He breathed on them. And when Elijah stretches out over that boy... When Elijah stretches out over that boy... The Holy Spirit comes into that boy to bring life. Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit brings life to dead things. The Spirit brings life to moments where people think there is no more hope. The Spirit brings life to things people think are impossible. The Spirit brings impossibilities to be possible. I think it's the Holy Spirit that's raising this boy right now. Because the pattern's there. When the breath is mentioned in Scripture, it's always the Holy Spirit. This is not just an introduction to the resurrection. It's the introduction to how the resurrection is going to play out in your life and in my life. Because what happens? Think about it. You are now buried through Christ in baptism. That you might receive the gift of... What? Holy Spirit. This boy is raised to life. The same way that Jesus will be raised to life. The same way that, you know, Adam was raised to life. He shows up in this moment, and he breathes on them. Let's go back. Oh, I didn't even get... I have, I'm on my first page of notes. Out of five pages I've got. I have got to be a better teacher. Okay. Um, the Lord Elijah's cry. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down to the room of the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look... Your son is alive. Starts off the story, my son is dead. Ends with my son is alive. And that crucial moment there. It starts, my son is dead, and he's in the arms of Elijah. And it ends with, my son is alive, and Elijah coming downstairs with him. He gave him to his mother. I wonder if Elijah carried him down, I don't know. Makes you wonder how big the kid was. I don't think it's because he's still weak. I don't think it's because he can't function. Because I think, like you see in Lazarus, like you see throughout Scripture, when somebody's healed and they're brought back to life, they're brought back to life. I can't imagine, like, what is that moment like for this son and this mom? Like, I can't even fathom what that conversation's like. I can imagine this moment when she hears just one set of footsteps coming down the stairs because Elijah maybe is carrying him, just as he gave him to her. I can't imagine when all of a sudden she looks up and there's her son looking at her like, poof, what do you do with that moment? Like she's going to live it every day. Like now flour and oil are no big deal because she's got her kid back. 
Like, this is huge for her. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And the word of the Lord is from your mouth is truth. I think she becomes a believer in this moment. Now keep in mind, it's important. Jesus will reference the scripture. And actually, we're going to have somebody talk about this next week. I've got to run to Ireland to start a conference we're doing there. We're going to live a little bit more in Luke 4 next week. And I don't want to, I don't want to tip it too much. God's trying to teach us a lot of different lessons right now. So why is a story in the Bible? Why is this story in Scripture? Let's back up. I think it's always important to take what we call the aim, the author's intended meaning. Okay, What matters is what the author wanted, wanted to matter. That's what matters. Why did Elijah need to go through this experience? Why did Elijah need to go, to, go through it? Yeah, absolutely, man. I think you can say with certainty, I know he went to a high level this prayer. Yeah. Like, why else? Why did Elijah need to go through this? We know what's coming. If you've been around church a little bit. If you haven't, I'm really excited for you. Don't read ahead because it's going to blow your mind. I think it's the, uh, the path that the Lord has for him. He has to go through these so that he understands what he's going to be doing in the future. Yeah. You said it straight with Zerapath uh, where it's going to mold him. Yes. And dealing with this will be nothing compared to what he's about to face. Like, I, he was moved with compassion for a Gentile, you know, yeah. and someone unclean. And, and so you know his heart had to have been changed yeah. in that moment of desperation as well for the child. Yes. I think all those things are true. I think God's also trying to say, hey, Elijah, if I will do this for a Gentile widow... Imagine what I do for my own people. Elijah, if I'll work a miracle here, trust me, Elijah, I can work a miracle here. Elijah, if I can bring this boy back to life, Elijah, I can bring a nation back to life. Elijah, if I can bring something back from dead, I can also bring a nation back from, from the dead. Elijah, trust me in this. And he's going to stand here pretty soon in front of these prophets of Baal. And he's going to say, I've already done battle with Baal. I've already done battle with Baal. I'm afraid of no Baal right now. I took away the reins of the power of God. And also, the other God is Mot. He's a God of death, M-O-T. And he's going to say, guess what? I've also done battle with Mot. And I'm not afraid of him either. So all of a sudden, he's going to show up, not in his own strength and power, but in the power of God and say, you want to approach me with Mot? You want to threaten my life? I already beat him once. You want to threaten this bail? I'm already kicking his tail. Let's go. Let's get it on. That's why he can show up pretty soon at Mount Carmel and stand in front of these prophets with confidence because he has been cut down and cut away. He's gone through the crucible and he will need to have every bit of that in order to fight this next battle. You can't do that unless you've been through the fire. You can't do that unless your well is deep. So here's my challenge for us tonight. Lean into deep, deepening moments. You want to do great things for the kingdom. People do great things in the kingdom. It is never marked by your age. It is always marked by your obedience. And most of the people who do great things for the kingdom are people who have leaned in and dealt with the cutaway and cut down moments. They've leaned in. They've dealt with, dealt with the moments in the crucible. They've dealt with the fire. And they got deep wells, man. So when trouble comes... They're ready. 
They're ready. So let me give a few things I'll, we'll end with. Got this, I think, from Swindoll, and I don't know who he got it from, but I thought it was really cool. And I'm passing over all of my notes that I didn't even get to tonight to tell you these four statements I thought were really good. One, when you face tough times, I love these statements. I should have written down who he got them from because it wasn't him. So, number one, I am here by God's appointment. Can you say that? I'm here by God's appointment. Just saying, like, I don't know what all is going on. I don't necessarily want to be by this creek. I don't even necessarily want to be in this house. But here I am. It might be a job. It might be a marriage. It might be a difficult relationship. And maybe things weren't how you thought they were. Because I'm sure whenever he left Cherith for Zarephath, he thought life was going to get better. (laughs) And most of the time we think, well, if I just leave this job for another one, or if I just move from this town to another town, everything is going to be better. And we all know that's an illusion. Usually it ends up being more difficult. The first thing he says is no matter where God puts you, you are there by his appointment. And can you be content, like Paul says, in all things? All things. Can you be content? Number two, I love this statement. I am in his keeping. He has me. He's got me. He has never forsaken me. He has never abandoned me. His promise tells me that. I know that he is Jehovah Shema, the God who says, I am here. I am near. He will never leave me, never forsake me, never abandon me. He will never, ever, ever forget me. He didn't forget Elijah and Cherith, and he sure as heck did not forget him that day in Zarephath. He did not forget him. Can you do that number two is realize I'm in his keeping? Because when you can say those words, I'm here by his appointment, and I'm in his keeping, all of a sudden it settles your heart a bit. Like, he's got me in this. Like, I can't understand it. I'm a bit overwhelmed right now. I'm a bit stressed out right now, but I know two things. I'm here by his appointment, and I'm in his keeping. And number three, I'm under his training. I'm under his training. There's a chance that what I'm going through is not the end of it. It's just a step in the process. And I can't get overwhelmed by this because he's preparing me and can't prepare me for other things some other day. And the last one is, he will show me his purpose in his time. He will show me his purpose in time. At some point, I'm going to understand this, and it's all going to make sense. Right now, I don't get it, and I don't understand it. But someday, I will get why I'm going through this. Someday, this will make sense. By God's appointment, in God's timing, in his training, and for his time. Hey, listen, um, let's wrap up. I've gone over already. Man, thank you guys. Sorry I did not plow through all the stuff we were going to get through in Zarephath. we got to move on, though, or we're never going to finish this talk. Next time, you got to start throwing things at me to say, French, pick it up, pick it up. you gotta, you got to stay on track. I get so excited about teaching the Word of God. This stuff fires me up. I love just the story of what it means. It's just, it's just a beautiful story. There's so much in there, and I can't even begin to tell you what's coming. It just gets, it just keeps going, man. Uh, and, and the next few weeks are going to be amazing, especially as you see him have this huge showdown. And he reminds me of William Wallace in that moment. So 
it's it's fantastic. So, man, thank you guys. We'll keep plowing through. Uh, I will be missing you next week, but please be here. Be a part of this. Uh, next week, we're going to do something interesting. Uh, I want to have them take a, a bit of a, a hard time out for two reasons. One is I really want to teach the section on the prophets of Baal. Uh, but two, I'd already planned on it. I want us to go through and look at Elijah throughout the New Testament. So we've alluded to him several times, like through James. We've alluded to the transfiguration. We've alluded to Luke 4. I think it's important for us to go, why does he show up all over the place? Like, why? Why is he here? And we're going to take a little bit of a look next week and just kind of say, time out. It's not just an Old Testament thing. His name keeps carrying through. Kind of like Moses, kind of like Abraham. Elijah's kind of a big deal. All right? So we're going to dig into that next week. Thank you, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.